Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, do you remember Fraggle Rock? Dance your cares away. Worries for another day. Let the music play. Down in Fraggle Rock. That's the one. That's, rock. that's the theme song. Rock, well, rock. Hopefully we can't get sued for that. It's in your own I don't. Wouldn't that be cruel to to sue? I mean, you know, a bunch of, uh, of fraggles suing us. Oh yeah. Doesn't it seem like sort of anti-fraggle? I don't know. Yeah, what kind of legislation exists uh, that that, uh, that governs copyright issues uh, in the the subworlds versus the uh, the surface world? So, did did you grow up with the show, or are you? Yeah. Uh, you didn't. Mm. Yeah. I knew of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that I was maybe uh, too into, at that point, like hypnotizing myself on the weekends okay, rather than watching Fraggle Rock. Well, it was also an HBO thing in the States, I believe. So, uh, Oh, yeah. So there would have been that limitation as well. That would have been highfalutin back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. I think I probably saw episodes of it on uh, CBC because uh, my family was living in Canada at the time. So I think that's where I have my main uh, uh, Fraggle connection. Uh, because, of course, the, the series ran from 83 to 87. Um, it was carried on, on HBO, on CBC in Canada, and on UK, U, and on the UK's Television South. And it's, uh, it's a silly show uh, about creatures living in a cave and uh, their various adventures, their various songs, their various uh, comments on uh, daily life for us humans. All right, uh, let me just read this little bit from the Muppet Wiki about this. It says, The vision of Fraggle Rock articulated by Jim Henson was to depict a colorful and fun world, but also a world with a relatively complex system of symbiotic relationships between races of creatures and allegory to the human world, where each group was somewhat unaware of how interconnected and important they were to one another. This allegorical world allowed the program to entertain and amuse while seriously exploring complex issues of prejudice, spirituality, personal identity, environment, and social conflict. Heavy, right? Yeah. I think that's one of the amazing things about the show is that there is this very silly level to it, uh, the surface level of Fraggle Rock. But yeah, you can start analyzing it and analyzing it, and there's a lot of rich complexity there, because you're getting into 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 these themes of uh, of, of, of you know, global relationships, of, uh, of ecology, of how interconnected we all are. I mean, it's uh, it, ultimately, that's the message that Henson was trying to convey in, in the series, to make it educational, almost in a sort of moral sense uh, as opposed to uh, uh, strictly numbers and letters. Yeah, you're right, because there's lots of things to explore, like individuality versus like the common good and community and on and on. So it's kind of fascinating. There's even like an aspect of asexuality that you could go into, and maybe one day we will. But for today's purposes, we really wanted to introduce the Fraggle Rocks um, because we thought this was a great lens into cave living. Yes. Cavernous, underground living. And what it's like. And when we talk about the fraglets, by the way, we are talking about these creatures that are about 22 inches tall. And they really do sort of dominate the landscape of Fraggle Rock. And, of course, Fraggle Rock is named after them. Um, but as you had mentioned, they live in the system of natural caves. And 
th- what's interesting about these caves is that they connect to other worlds too. Ah, uh, yes, to our world, but also to uh, this other world where they, there are these giant creatures, right? That yeah. grow radishes. And we'll talk about the radish the economy yes. in a moment and how important that is. Uh, but you know, they they kind of remind me of pack rats. Which we've talked about before. Yes, because they're also bringing back little curios from these other worlds and the incorporating them, incorporating them into their 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 little environment, into their dens. Even um, yeah, we did a whole episode on the, the pack rat. Um, go back and, and listen to that uh, if you like. Um, I, I, I do want to note that uh, in part we're drawing from an essay by uh, Justin Werfel. Uh, titled The Ecology of Fraggle Rock, and this was this is one of four serious essays on fraggles in the book The Wider Worlds of Jim Henson, essays on his work and legacy beyond the Muppet Show and Sesame Street. Uh, this was uh, edited by Jennifer C. Garland and Anissa M. Graham, and uh, this is just a, a really good book. You can find it on, uh, on Amazon. It's uh, published by McFarland, and it is... It's pretty terrific. I, I, if you're a if you're a big Henson fan, a yeah. big Fraggle fan, a big Labyrinth, Dark Crystal, or what have you fan, even uh, Farscape, uh, check this book out because there's a lot for your brain to chew on in it. Yeah, this will be your seminal summer read. Now, before we talk more about Fraggles and uh, some of their relationships with one another, let's talk about caves because they really are these worlds of darkness, and um, in some ways, they are very much hidden worlds. So according to National Geographic, worldwide, 90% of caves have no visible entrance, and they remain undiscovered since they are underground, hidden from the vision of satellites, and inaccessible to GPS signals. So it would make sense that these things are hidden, because you really have to go off and try to explore them and map them in order to really understand them. And the scientific study of caves and their environments is called speleology, and the formation and development of caves is called speleogenesis. And that's when we get into those ideas of stalactites and stalagmites um, and all these amazing uh, formations that create this other world. Yeah, just the idea that so many of these cave environments are literally sealed off from the rest of the world is is pretty mind-blowing because we're all familiar with with sort of the basic uh, cave environment where there's an entrance and there like say bats are living in there and coming in and out mm-hmm. uh, or there's a bear living in a cave and coming in and out or even humans supposedly living in caves and coming in and out but the idea of sealed environments that have been sealed away for millions of years that's where it it really starts getting amazing. Yeah, it's like a basement to your house that you never even knew about. Yeah, or a time cap, like a living time capsule, ex- where it, instead of, of course, everything staying stationary, it's changed, but it's changed according to its uh, almost its own rules, uninfluenced by the world outside. Indeed, and you can find them all over the place. You can find them at cliffs at the edge of a coastline being chipped away by pounding waves. Um, some have been created from lava flows, which create a kind of tube that hardens. And then you even have caves that form in glaciers where meltwater carves tunnels at the beginning of, a, of, of that uh, water's journey to the sea. Yeah, and in many cases we're dealing with situations where at some point in the distant past um, you had life forms that ventured into the cave, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, what is life going to do? Life is going to seep in. It's going to find its niche wherever it can find it, right? Yeah. And so it ventures into the cave. It adapts to sort of the twilight zone of the cave, mm-hmm. and then over time those forms take to the deeper, darker portions of the cave. And then circumstances occur 
that cut those environments off from the outside world. Uh, the, the life forms themselves may already be uh, evolutionarily cut off from uh, their previous forms and thus the outside world. And then they just remain cut off until millions of years later, uh, somebody happens to be digging with a, a backhoe or, or, or strategically uh, checking uh, or strategically exploring for uh, some sort of a cave environment. Yeah, it's amazing to imagine all these caves um, existing because if you think about it in this way, it takes about 100,000 years for a cave to widen large enough to actually fit a human inside of it. So all of this sort of deep history has been happening unbeknownst to us and undiscovered largely by us. And yet it is hosting just this this rich ecosystem of all these different insects and animals and sometimes humans with, with their bars of gold. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, the, how long it takes for, for a cave to even be large enough for a human to fit in it because I, I, I love the idea of uh, subterranean humanoids and like, yeah. We have we have so many versions of that in our myth and our fiction making, you know, ranging from uh you know, like the Morlocks and goblins and ghouls and uh, uh on up to more modern versions like uh like the like the like the chuds or the the monsters <laughs> in the descent. And uh the but when you when you look at cave biology as we're looking at in this this episode, you see more and more that it exists on a much smaller scale and when you start pulling apart the resources required for a continued existence in a in a cave environment uh the idea of uh, of goblins and uh and, uh and 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 creepers in the cave just don't really hold up yeah again you're talking about species that survive on a smaller scale and the reason for that is because there are limited resources right so if you're in a cave there's not that much to eat and there's also a lot more predators than there are resources or prey, I should, guess you should say. According to the National Geographic article, Discoveries in the Dark, at least a dozen known caves from Romania to Wyoming have no ecological ne- connection to the surface. This means, means they run purely uh, um, on uh, geologic substances such as sulfur compounds, methane, iron, and hydrogen eaten by specialized microbes, which uh, in turn feed higher organisms. And uh, one of the examples they point out in this article there's uh, Israel's uh, Elion Cave, which was uncovered accidentally in May 206 by excavation. Mm-hmm. And it was probably sealed, they think, for a million years. All right. This with a, So there's this tiny little ecosystem in there fueled by warm groundwater laced with sulfur that uh, in turn fed microbes and at least 10 previously unknown crustaceans and other creatures. And one of the, the, the crazy things about this, too, is that the area uh, where the, uh, around this cave had been inhabited for just ages and ages, mm-hmm. and no one had uncovered it until then. So it really drives home uh, the, the question, how many little ecosystems uh, are buried away uh, just in our immediate vicinity that we've just that we've never happened upon that are just thriving on their own or if not thriving at least uh, barely getting by because we'll discuss these are often very fragile environments but 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 how many such worlds are out there just hidden from us well and also we've we've touched on this before um caves could be a rich source of possible antibiotics for us, because as we know from microbiologist Hazel Barton, who also spelunks, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> looking for, um, for 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 uh, possible bacteria that could be used, particularly against superbugs, uh, which is pretty much wiping out our current arsenal of antibiotics. Um, she is saying that you know an antibiotic is really a 
very complex chemical compound. It's not something that can be synthesized in a meaningful way or an easy way. And she's saying that caves, with their kind of uh, biodiversity mm-hmm. in these special uh, circumstances, could be growing the next sort of antibiotic that can help us do battle with these superbugs. All right, so let's talk about some of these creatures that live in caves, the, the troglofauna, uh, if you will. Uh, yes. Now, we have basically three different types of troglofauna, or we, uh, we divide them up into three different categories. And these three categories really depend on how uh, attached to the cave they really are, how dependent they are on the cave versus the outside world, versus the surface world. Yeah, because if you have an insect, a spider, let's say, hanging out, near the cave's entrance is going to be vastly different from its counterpart deep, deep inside. And in fact, you could say that this uh, this spider hanging out is just really a tourist. You could call this insect a troglozine. Yeah, this comes from the Greek words troglos, meaning cave, and xenos, meaning guest. And uh, these are animals that use the cave for shelter but don't complete their life cycle there. So bats are actually the best example of this. Uh, right? They live in the caves. Mm-hmm. They, they, uh, you know, they, they reproduce, they raise their young, but they also leave. And they have to leave uh, every night in order to, uh, to, to obtain that, uh, that precious food. Uh, other examples that are less uh, snazzy, uh, you have bears. Uh, which uh, which may live in the cave, may hibernate in a cave, but uh, obviously they have to leave the cave. They are mm-hmm. essentially creatures of the surface world, mm-hmm. um, raccoons, and uh, and yeah. So these are guests of the cave, as the as the name implies. Spirits of dead pirates. Well, okay, you could you could throw that in as well. Gold yeah. bars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So any creature, unnatural or natural, that is living in the cave, living some portion of its life cycle in the cave, but is not there. All the time. But then you have another category called troglophiles, which is cave lovers, right? File. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about worms, crickets, crayfish, and salamander. Also beetles who live off the dung piles produced by bats. And here you see them completing their life cycles in a cave, but they can also survive above ground. Yes. And they get, I, I kind of think about it as Persephone, right? And, and her deal with Hades. Oh, yes. She was, uh, stolen away to the, uh, to, to the, uh, the underworld by Hades. But since he stole her and due to some sort of, uh, they worked it out with the, it was the some gods. sort of contract. Like yeah. she only ate like three pomegranate seeds. Therefore, she could go up for the following seasons of yeah. the year. And so I think and about that, that's why we have spring, right? Th- because there you she's go. allowed to come back. And the tribal files are similar. You know, they've got a little bit of a pact with the cave in that way. Yeah. I like to think of it in terms of, um, say, someone listens to the doors. Or what's a, what's a more hardcore example? Let's say fish. Let's say uh, someone who listens to the band Fish. Mm-hmm. Take the troglozines. Again, they're guests of the cave. They can come They can come and go, but they, they're, not the, they're not there all the time. So uh, as a fish listener, the, the troglozine uh, listens to fish, but also listens to, to other uh, bands and other musical options fairly frequently. And then with the troglophiles, uh, this is a fish listener who listens to fish most of the time, but they can branch out. They can listen to other types of music. But uh, the next group we're going to talk about, uh, talk about the troglobite. <laughs> These are obligate cave denizens. They live exclusively in the cave, and this would be the fish fan who can only listen to fish, who cannot listen to anything outside of, uh, of their, uh, their, their personal uh, listening niche. Yeah, think about that spider who maybe started out at the cave entrance, mm-hmm. went in a little bit more, 
let's say that its uh, its progeny then began to adapt itself. And then the progeny said, its offspring said, hey, I'm going to go way back there. That looks awesome back there. And then another generation of those spiders adapted even more. And all of a sudden, they are completely wedded to this space because they have changed so much to adapt to it that they could no longer go out to that entrance of that cave. Right. Not only are they adapting more and more to survive on the the resources provided to them exclusively in the the deeper portions of the cave, Mm -hmm. but they've given up the adaptations they need to survive in the sunlit world. Chief among these, of course, pigmentation, Mm -hmm. which is more than just, uh, you know, uh, colorful uh, decorations on our skin. It it helps, it protects us against uh, UV rays from the sun. So without the sun, there's no need for for our bodies to invest in that kind of protection. You also don't need that sort of camouflage or that level of it because most of the creatures that deep in the cave, they are without sight. Yeah, so it doesn't matter if you're essentially just pale, ghastly white or even translucent because the sight isn't really an issue anymore. But you get these other great adaptations, like you get longer limbs or longer antennae, which really allow you to have a more exquisite system to ferret out sensations around you. Yeah, because you need to touch more of the area around you, so you have more um, appendages with which to touch it, longer appendages with which to touch your surroundings. You're more dependent upon uh, sound or even just slight uh, sensations across the, the skin, mm-hmm. changes in, in air uh, quality, for instance. And this is where it gets really freaky-deaky, though, because the sort of creatures that we know and love are vastly different deep within the cave. And I'm talking about a pseudoscorpion, for instance, that doesn't have a stinging tail, instead injects venom with its claws. Wow. Yeah. So it's got this adaptation of like, well, let me let me just throw this venom out here in the claw area because it's a lot easier for me to get to my prey because I have more, as, as I had said earlier, exquisitely attuned um, senses now. Now, um, other troglobites include, uh, and, and just to, to back up on that, troglos, of co- again, means cave, and bios means life. So this is cave life in its purest sense, uh, really. And uh, um, among the uh, troglobites, we find various types of crayfish and shrimp, cavefish, salamanders, various insects, uh, arachnids, as, we, as we've discussed. Another c- crucial thing about adapting to that ecology, okay, adapting to that environment mm-hmm. deep in the cave, is that this is not a... In the same way we discussed the vampire bat in the past, where, uh, where the vampire bat is adapting to a diet that is not a rich diet. Mm-hmm. Uh, these these creatures are, have adapted to thrive in a world that is not rich in resources. So they have to survive on less, and they have to have a metabolism that can allow for long periods of, of famine. Yeah, so they have a much slower metabolism. And in a sense, these are sort of extremophiles, right, because they're living in extreme conditions and as a result, this kind of changes their lifespan. Um, you had mentioned the crayfish. There's the crayfish of Shelta Cave, Alabama, which mates around its 100th year and can live over 150 years. Yeah, that is that is pretty amazing. Here it is. It's a century old, and it's uh, it's still breeding, or it's even just getting around just, to breeding. Yeah, this is just reaching maturity, uh, uh, sexual maturity. And then, uh, and then it has another half century or even, uh, I've, I've seen even estimates of up to 175 year lifespans for these creatures. It's crazy. Yeah, it's nuts. And then you just have some creatures that are visibly strange. They, they are otherworldly to us, like the Proteus anguinus, which is an ulm or a salamander. 
And it has a serpentine body, and it's, of course, it's translucent looking. It's covered by that, that whitish translucent skin. And it has two frilly pink gills at oh, the back yes. of its head. And what I love about this is that the first written account of it dates back to 1689, in which finally the scholar Janez Vajkard Vasavor disputed the belief that these olms were baby dragons. <laughs> That's how strange they were. Yeah. People were like, ah, oh, that must be a baby dragon. Yeah, this is something so fantastic. It, it must be making our more fantastic ideas uh, a reality. Um, yeah, the, uh, some of the other creatures that we ran across... Um, they're, of course, rimipedes, and these are pretty amazing. You've probably seen them before. They, they look kind of like centipedes from another planet, yeah. really. Um, they, and these are Earth's most primitive living crustacean. They dwell in saltwater coastal caves across the globe, and it's believed that they may have started out over 100 million years ago when the supercontinent Pangaea was first breaking up. And so now you find them, uh, you find them all over in these, uh, these, uh, these, these, uh, aquifer environments, these, uh, underground, uh, layers of water bearing permeable rock. And that's what must be so exciting for biologists is to, to find these new species. Just, you know, crack open one of these caves mm-hmm. and all of a sudden say, oh my gosh, look at the adaptations and, and just look at the biodiversity present here that we had no idea even existed. Yeah, it's kind of like backing up the clock and saying, well, what if, what if we had gone this direction instead of this direction mm-hmm. and seeing that alternate timeline of evolution? Uh, in a sense, uh, that's kind of what it's like when, when we're peering into these, uh, these, these environments. You're right. It is like a time capsule in that sense. Uh, and we, we continue to find all these new creatures, and we give them some pretty amazing names. I was reading uh, about some of these uh, that have been named after um, Japanese movie monsters. For instance, there's the uh, Swimming Mothra or Pleomothra. There's the Strong Godzilla or Godzillius Rob- uh, Robustus. And then there's the Gnome Godzilla, the God Godzillio Gnomus, which, uh, which, are, which are all just fantastic names for organisms. Kohira! Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to get into some serious discussion about the fraggles. All right, we're back. I did not realize that John Goodman was in Chud. Yeah, it's a it's a bit part, but he's, he's in there. Huh, yeah. all right. Even better. All right, so let's get back to these fraggles. And because now we have this sort of the baseline idea of cave ecology and what dwells within it can't help but just kind of looking at these guys and saying all right what's going on there yeah and that is indeed what uh, justin verfel uh did in his uh his essay in the in the uh the henson book that we mentioned earlier looking at fraggle rock as uh no, not not just the tv show but the environment portrayed there looking at the uh, the various creatures mm-hmm. uh, especially the the three primary creatures that we're going to discuss and trying to make sense of them in terms of real world ecology, uh, real world science, which uh, this is an area I, I love to explore in my own work, you know, comparing something unnatural with something natural and seeing how they line up. Uh, and often it's surprising how well they do. And uh, and yeah, certainly we see that there with the fraggle. So let's let's start with the the title organism the fraggle. Yes, they are a very carefree lot. They spend most of their time playing, exploring, and generally enjoying themselves. They're all about individualism. And they live on a diet of vegetables. Now, radishes, that is pretty much like if they had a food pyramid, it would be like the radish would would occupy probably about 80% of that space. Yes. And um, 
Now, radishes are also used in construction of something called doozer sticks, and we'll get to that in a second, but they munch on that quite a bit. Uh, Fraggles have the unique ability to share dreams. I love this. Whoa. Yeah. I forgot about this this particular power. Yeah, if they touch their heads together before falling asleep, they can enter the dream of the other Fraggle. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so they do the sort of, like, drift thing. Wow, that is that is impressive. I can't. That just makes my imagination run wild with like with possibility. What would human culture be like if we could do that? I mean, in a sense, we find ways to do that, uh, but well, I mean, but not on an organic level. That's on the books. Oh man, well they should call it like fragilization or dream fragilization. That should be the process. Fraggle drift. Yeah, fraggle drift. All right, so these guys are the Fraggles. Um, they share this cave or this environment, I should say, with the Doozers, who are starkly different from them. Yeah, while the, the Fraggles kind of strike me as, if, if I was to connect them to, to real-world biology, I would say that maybe they evolved from some form of lemur. They seem like a, a kind of a cave lemur type of a creature. Yeah. Whereas the, the Doozers are a little, they're smaller, for instance, for starters. And six they're inches. Six inches, and they're a little more... Uh, insect-like. They have antenna, and they yeah. build constantly. They're kind of, you could almost think of them in terms of social insects, like social builders like like wasps and bees, except, A, they're living in caves, yeah. and, B, they're building uh, things that look like bridges and, and little towers and just uh, stuff that looks like human construction projects. And their primary construction material is composed of uh, or made from radish, so it remains edible to anybody who's into eating radishes, namely the fraggles. Yeah, we'll talk more about that and why this is really important. Mm-hmm. And there are parallels in ecology with that. Uh, but yeah, the doozers are absolutely dedicated to their work and nothing but their work. And they're not about the individual, they're about the community. Right. But then you have something called ditsies. These are tiny little creatures that give off light. They are bioluminescent. Yeah, they're kind of uh, kind of like fairies almost, and yeah. they just float around, lighting up this cave environment, and that's and that's also crucial. We'll discuss that. So these are the the three main species. Now, just to run through them real quick, well, this is we could almost think of this as a game show, um, a troglophana game show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to name each one, and you tell me if you think that this creature would be a troglo troglozine, a troglophile, or a troglobite. Mm. Fraggle. Fraggle, I think, would be a troglobite. No, excuse me, troglophile, because they obviously they go outside to forage for radishes. Yes, yeah, I would say they would be a troglophile, or you could almost make the argument that they're troglo, they're troglozines, since they have to go out to get those radishes. Oh yeah, I guess you could. But but then that brings up the question: if the radish, well, that's a question they end up answering, right? If the radishes on the surface are not available, then there are disastrous consequences. Then they are troglozines. Okay. Yes. Right. Now, how about the how about the doozers? The doozers, I'm a little sketchier on. Yeah. Because they also are dependent on the radishes, but that's just their their industry, right? Not necessarily the basis of their diet. But if they're they're right. so tied to their work that they would they would die, and they actually there's even one instance where they might have to relocate. Hmm. So I'm going to say they're troglozine as well. Okay. I mean, you could make the argument that. I mean, do they bring the radishes down? I'm under the uh, the the working assumption here that the fraggles bring the, bring the radishes down, and then the, the doozers use that radish material. So if they're not actually if they're dependent upon another organism that is a troglophile or a troglozine, they could potentially themselves be troglobites, 
I don't know. It's an I open feel question. Like, I feel like this is this is up for debate, but <laughs> <laughs> this is a game our listeners can play as well. Okay. Vote on the doozer issue. Uh, troglozine, troglophile, troglobite. Uh, likewise, the ditzies are a little hard to nail down as well, but they they seem a little more on the troglobite scale. I would say the troglobite because they seem to have their counterparts in glowworms, which yes. we know exist in caves in New Zealand and, and Australia, and they also give off light. So uh, there's a possibility that they could be true troglobites. So why are we talking about all these guys? Well, because, of course, they are exhibiting something called mutualism, which is really important in ecosystems. Yes. Um, in this in this instance, we've touched on a little of this already, but the fraggle eats a host of pilfered vegetables. The radish is key among these. They forage this from the surface. They bring it home where it plays a pivotal role in, the, in their ecology and the overall ecology of fraggle rock. So, again, uh, it basically goes down like this. Fraggles eat the radishes. Mm-hmm. Doozers uh, themselves seem to eat some sort of custard-based food pellet, perhaps uh, perhaps something they get from a fungus. I don't know. We, we never really – there are a lot of questions about that. Right. Um, but they use the radishes in their building materials. And then fraggles, in turn, eat uh, the doozer building constructions. They'll walk through and they'll destroy part of it, kind of like Godzilla's, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and munch it down because it's edible. And in doing this, they're kind of, role, they're kind of playing the role of a decomposer. Because they're uh, in, instead of uh, like an insect may eat dead animal parts, you know, just that keeps dead animals then from piling up all around us, breaking down those materials. Uh, the, the fraggle is breaking down the the doozer materials, which in turn makes room for more doozer construction. Yeah, and we actually see what happens when the fraggles stop eating the these. Uh, crazy constructions by the doozers. And in fact, it's episode 106, and okay. it is called The Preachification of Convincing John. This is the one that Jonathan Strickland was telling us. That he we was had like, this is the one. Yeah. you got to watch it. It's not the one that made him cry as a child. Oh. That's a different one. Which one made him cry? Uh, I can't remember. There was some sort of circumstance where there, a couple of the fraggles were stuck in the cave, and they thought they were going to die. Oh. And he said that it was interesting because they were so explicit in there about, like, the actual they might die, which was a concept, you know, as a child that you're trying to figure out and the actual threat of it um, being experienced Again, by the show got into some deep areas. Fraggles. Uh, but anyway, back to the preachification of Convincing John. Convincing John is one of the fraggles, and uh, he has a lot of influence over the other fraggles. And so Moki is one of the fraggles, and she decides, you know what? The doozers, they love building so much, and, and these are such intricate structures that they're building. We just come along and chomp them. Perhaps we should respect their building. And, and so she gets everybody to stop eating them. What happens? Absolute chaos. Absolute chaos. I mean, you see, like, construction uh, of these radish temples everywhere. And, in fact, there's so much so that they're taking up space that everybody actually occupies in their regular day-to-day lives. And uh, and then the doozers think, well, let's get out of here because these guys aren't eating it and we have no space to build anymore. So, wow, so they actually start planning to to launch out of there and explore new regions of the cave. Yeah, it's, and it's really sad. I think, like, there's even, like, the scene between the doozer baby and her mom and the baby's going, why do we have to leave? She's like, because things just happen like this. Life is hard or something oh. like that. And then, of course, we have the ditzies that, again, are producing light for the uh, in the cave. And in turn, they depend on the sound of fraggles in order to survive. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a relationship that's a little harder to line up with anything in the natural world. Um but I'm also not discounting the possibility that maybe it's a little more complex than that. 
I don't know. Um, maybe they somehow use the sound of the fraggles. The vibrations. The vibrations to know where they are or it vibrates uh, organs. I think it somehow contributes to their ability to be bioluminescent organisms and mm. that somehow that spark of energy is created by the vibrations from sound. And what happens if the ditzy lights go out? Well, they just they go comatose, really. Yeah, fraggles go comatose. Other uh, forms of life in the cave become comatose. So light in Fraggle Rock is not merely a, a nice bonus uh, and something that allows us to see the characters on this TV show. <laughs> it is uh, an essential part of their ecology. So you see, if one part of this triangle is affected, it ends up affecting all of them. And that's, again, part and partial to the ecological message and the, the global community message of Fraggle Rock. Yeah, and we don't know if glowworms were to cease glowing, if they would really seriously affect other species' ability to live in the caves that they dwell in. But we do know, as you say, all of that is very fragile and all of it works in tandem. Yeah, I mean, we see many examples of this, but one example I grew up with was, you know, growing up in a, a, a sort of a rural Tennessee environment where a lot of people were hunting deer mm-hmm. and then having to and ask them the question, well, why are they shooting deer? What if they stop shooting deer? And then someone explains, well, if they stop shooting the deer, then there are too many deer. Why would that be? Well, that's because there's nothing, uh, there are no natural predators around to eat the deer anymore. Why are they gone? I said, oh, well, because we messed that up as well. And you get into these, uh, uh, you know, all of these, uh, the, these butterfly effects in our, uh, in our environment where you change one little thing or one big thing and the, uh, the ramifications can be pretty intense. Well, I mean, the honeybees oh, yeah, that's are a good an excellent example of this. The pesticides we now know are responsible for the collapse of the honeybee colonies. And so, so again, we see this interesting, fragile system of mutualism here. Now, uh, in the natural world, we see plenty of symbiotic relationships in caves, but, but, uh, as for mutualism itself, you have to kind of go to a, to a much smaller scale in the caves to really see this going on. Um, given the, given the rarity of resources in a cave environment, there's an overwhelming sense of, of selfish competition among uh, cave fauna. But as discussed in the article, What's Up Down There? Microbial Diversity in Caves by Hazel A. Barton and Valm Girado, published in a 2007 edition of Microbe Magazine, quote, because limited but chemically complex nutrients enter the cave system, very few microbial species are capable of encoding all the necessary uptake and catabolic reactions to support growth. To overcome this limitation, selfish competition for resources is replaced by cooperative and mutualistic associations, such as have been seen in biofilm communities. End quote. So there's just a, um, a little insight into uh, into the reality of mutualism in caves. It, it, even though this is a very uh, resource-sparse environment and there is a lot of intense mm-hmm. competition and lots of... Uh, Lots of appendages that may grab you and push you towards some sort of uh, translucent mouth. Yeah. There, there still is some um, some mutualism to be found. But let's talk about some of those appendages because that's kind of fun. Ah, yes, uh, predators. Well, um, you know, it should, should come as no surprise to any casual fraggle observer or or even someone who's never seen the show since we just mentioned how an episode dealt with death that there would be an episode that also deals with predation at least to some degree. Mm-hmm. And there is indeed uh, an episode where we learn about the glob, uh, an amoeba-like creature which uh, apparently preys on doozers. But it's apparently a pretty rare creature. Um, it's only really mentioned this once. A lot of the doozers don't seem to know about it. So this suggests that it might reside outside the cave and simply venture inside to hunt, which is reminiscent of uh, of certain real-life organisms such as uh, skunks, 
which uh, if you've ever watched, um, I believe it was uh, The Life of Mammals from mm-hmm. David Attenborough, there's a whole scene where they show this uh, this cave, envi- there's cave environment, and you have, of course, a colony of bats, and baby bats will sometimes fall down. Yeah. And they have, uh, they have a chance to make it back up, but they have to make it all the way across the cave floor and then back up the wall. And uh, during that time on the floor, they make a very tempting snack, so tempting that you have skunks that are venturing in from the surface world uh, in order to uh, to paw at them, to uh, to sort of to, to, to paw them out, slap them around, and then eat them. Yeah, I mean, skunks don't know. They're probably like, I'm going to go to the baby bat store now. Yeah. They go into a cave, and they're like, have any fallen? Yep, okay, nice snack, thank you. Uh, you also have something called the giant centipede, and this will hide out on the underside of a rock and then attack bats, and they use their oversized legs to overpower their prey. Yes, uh, Scolopendra gigantine. Just to drive this home, this is a centipede that can overpower a bat that preys preys on on mammals, which uh, which just kind of strikes a very uncomfortable chord with me because it feels like some sort of natural order has been uh, perverted here. Yeah, centipedes should not be preying on mammals. Those those should be off the menu. For you invertebrates, unless well, it's unless you're decomposing something. I think it also underscores how much um, the centipede has adapted to that environment to have limbs that long enough and that strong yes. enough to pin down a bat. And if you want to learn more about that uh, particular centipede, there's a 2005 study, uh, predation by giant centipedes, uh, Scolopendra giganti, on three species of bats in a Venezuelan cave. Uh, and that's, uh, put out, uh, that was conducted by the University of Puerto Rico. Uh, it's a pretty interesting read with some very terrifying images of centipedes latched to the, the ceiling of the cave and kind of arching their back and grabbing at bats. Yeah, you know, I found myself, uh, is that the one that has a slideshow? Yes. Yeah, I found myself sketching a lot of those because they were so much fun. For the most part, however, with, in Fraggle Rock, we, uh, we don't see a lot of, uh, of predators. We don't, we, we hear about various creatures that may or may not pose a danger to Fraggles, but, uh, they seem to live a pretty comfortable life for the most part, uh, in the, and they're, you know, certainly they're able to fret about things that are, uh, that are uh, a little less of substantial. Uh, given their uh, their comfort zone. Yeah, they don't have a lot of experience outside of their own environment, so they kind of have to rely on different information to get through, and that's where Uncle Matt comes into it because he enters the human world, which is called outer space. <laughs> and he sends back postcards about what these crazy humans are doing, like the fact that there's these hard-hatted people building things, but their buildings taste awful. <laughs> they do. They, they really do taste awful compared to the uh, the wonderful... Radish. Uh, you know, I remember watching the show as a kid and kind of trying to imagine what the the doozer materials tasted like. And now I can sort of imagine yeah. that kind of like kind of a sugary radish. That's what I think. Yeah. Kind of taste. Yeah. Yeah. It, but although they're kind of crystalline looking. Like yeah. They're, they're, like it's almost radish sugar that they've made. Yeah. Which is why they would be so delicious. They would have to be a super normal stimuli. Yeah. All right. So there you have it. Fraggles. Fraggle Rock. Doozers, ditsies, the glob, giant centipedes, the whole nine yards. That's right, life in a cave and what it might be like from a true Fraggle Rock experience perspective. Yes. Now, we know that we have listeners out there who 
have um, a lot more hardcore experience with the Fraggles who can uh, who have seen all the episodes and have gone back again and again to feed their nostalgia. Uh, and I know that you guys and gals probably have some additional information you would like to bring to the table mm-hmm. regarding Fraggles and how they might fit into our natural world. Likewise, uh, if you have some tidbits about uh, about cave ecology and cave biology that you would like to share with us, be it uh, grounded in the real world or the world of fiction, uh, you can certainly get in touch with us, and we'd love to discuss that with you. Yeah, uh, let us know about your your uh, thoughts on the Fraggle verse. Yes. All right. So if you want to do that, you want to get in touch with us, uh, reach out to us. You'll find us at stufftoblowyourmind dot com. That is the mothership. That's where you will find all of our podcast episodes, our blog posts, our videos, links out to our various social media accounts, which include Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. YouTube, where we are Mind Stuff Show, um, and uh, what Google Plus, who knows what else, who knows what the future will bring. Yeah, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so by sending us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 